Okay, can I ask you please to take out your Bibles in front of you and turn them to page 1,533. Uh, this is John chapter 12, and we're going to have our Bible reading in just a moment. John chapter 12, page 1,533. Uh, and also pull out the leaflet that you are given as you came in. Inside you'll see an outline of what we're going to cover uh, in this part of our service. Uh, the passage that we're coming to is a great summary of everything that we've seen so far in John 1 to 12, or what's called the Book of Signs. Uh, we're actually going to close out 2023 at this point, and we're going to come back to the second half of John next year, chapters 13 through 21, what's called the Book of Glory. Today's passage is actually quite a long passage, uh, and so as I've done in recent weeks, I'm going to split it into two parts, and I'm not going to cover every detail, but we're going to focus on some of the really memorable images about seeds, um, about victory ceremonies, about light in darkness. So those are some of the things to look out for. But uh, Aaron's going to come up at this point and read to us from John chapter 12. We're going to start verses 20 uh, through 36. Thanks, Aaron. If you all have your Bibles open, uh, we're just going to start from um, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to meet Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, My servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the Lord that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Okay, well, if you um, make sure you have the handout open in front of you, you'll see that we're on the left-hand side of the page. This is part one, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, Where the passage begins is with, uh, we're told there in verses 21 and 22, uh, that some Greeks have come to see Jesus. Now, um, just in case you're wondering, the phrase or the word some Greeks, is just a generic term that the Jews had for anyone who was not a Jew. Uh, In other words, could describe most of us here today. 
And what they've done is they've gone to Jerusalem, we're told, to worship at the festival. This is the festival of the Passover. And one of the unanswered questions is why they've gone there. We're not, we're not told. Uh, it's possible that these non-Jews had converted to Judaism. Uh, or it's just possible that actually they were spiritual and religious and were on some kind of pilgrimage. Maybe they're God-fearers of some type. We know it was actually common for people to do that. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter 8, we meet an Ethiopian who travels up to Jerusalem, uh, who happens to get converted and gets baptised in a puddle of water on the side of the road. Um, but I guess what's most striking about being told that there's some Greeks who want to see Jesus is John's sense of irony. See, non-Jews want to find out about Jesus even as the Jewish leaders, his own people, are trying to kill him. And that sets the scene, really, uh, for what comes next. Now, John doesn't tell us if Jesus actually met with these Greeks. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, but either way, John's more interested in what Jesus had to announce. And so I'll get you to look with me at verse 23 at this point. Verse 23, Jesus replied, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified.'" The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we've been reading our way through John, and you'll recall, actually, that phrase has come up a number of times, the hour has come. In fact, I've listed all the occurrences there for you on your handout, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. When Jesus says, my hour has come now, clearly he's saying, pay attention. Uh, this is a major turning point. Of course, it begs the question, if the hour has come for the Son of Man, the big question is, for what? For what reason? Well, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified. And how that's going to take place, well, verses 24 through 26 are going to explain, and in many ways it's a summary of everything in chapters 1 through 12. Have a look at me there, verse 24, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. What Jesus is doing here is that he's summing up his whole mission by using a metaphor or an image that would have been universally understood in an agrarian society. It's an image to say that you only get life through death. Now, I for one am no gardener. Um, but even I understand that you have to put a seed in the ground if you want a crop to burst forth. So what Jesus is saying is that his pathway to glory, it's going to be through death and suffering. Look at what he says next, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life uh, will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, Jesus actually is just pointing out that Life is only temporary anyway. And so then, thirdly, in verse 26, what he does is reassure his disciples that anyone who follows him will enter eternal glory with him. Verse 26, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. What's more, verse 26, Jesus even promises, My Father will honour the one who serves me. You hear what Jesus is saying? If you follow him, you will be where he is, and the Father 
will honour all those who serve Jesus. I just want to pause for a moment and say how extraordinary that is. Can you see what's coming according to Jesus? There will be glory for him and there will be honour for all who serve him. Glory for him and honour for all who serve him. Uh, Which I think is so reassuring and so comforting. It's actually an incentive to persevere in following Jesus, an incentive to stay the course with Jesus because where he goes, we will follow because what's coming for him is coming for us as well. Or to put it slightly differently, when the one whom we follow receives his accolades, so does everyone who's worked for his success. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the victory ceremony will be like when the father welcomes home his triumphant son, his mission accomplished, and he invites us, his friends, to join him too? Well, that's the picture of what lies ahead. Nevertheless, the cost for Jesus will be very high. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus looks ahead and sees the pathway to glory is through suffering, and so perhaps the question is, will he back out? Well, thankfully he won't. Christ will not turn back. Verse 27 continues, No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. So what Jesus is saying now, glory for Jesus, honour for his people, glory for his Father in heaven. And the equivalent of Jesus' prayer here in John's Gospel is actually found in Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's the prayer that Jesus prays, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Both are prayers that are so appropriate. They are prayers that Jesus himself prays, which is the same prayer that he teaches us to pray. Father, your kingdom come, Father, your will be done. Father, your name be hallowed throughout all the earth. And so, after this, uh, verses 28 and following, the Father in heaven affirms Jesus' prayer. We're told in verse 28, a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and will glorify it again. And then Jesus comes back to the theme of how the Son of Man will be glorified now that his hour has come. Verse 32 Verse 32, Jesus says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, it's a particular image or a metaphor that Jesus is using here about being lifted up. Uh, Clearly, I think John wants us to recall chapter 3, where Jesus met Nicodemus. And you'll see I printed there on your handout what he says in that interaction with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 13 Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. 
when the New Testament speaks about Jesus being lifted up, at this point, it's anticipating Jesus being lifted up high on a cross. It's pointing to his death. And in fact, John explicitly confirms that. Back in chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 33, John says, Jesus said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Once again, his pathway to glory is through suffering. Now, if you're wondering what the reference in chapter 3 to Moses and the bronze snake was all about, well, it's actually a reference to the Old Testament episode in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, Here in Numbers 21, uh, the Israelites had sinned against God uh, and they faced his judgment. Uh, In fact, a plague of snakes devastated the entire community. And the only way in which the Israelites could escape death was by looking up at a bronze snake that Moses made and mounted on a pole high over the countryside for all to see. Uh, It's a deliberate parallel with the way in which Jesus will be hung up high on a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem so that all who look to him and believe in him might find eternal life. Well, at this point, the crowd raises a pretty reasonable objection. It turns out, actually, the crowd's been listening carefully to Jesus. And what they've heard him say is that he must die before he can be glorified, and the Father glorified, and his servants honoured by the Father. They've heard him say he must die, but it raises the question then, well, in what sense can he be the Messiah? Because, look at verse 34, verse 34, the crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So, (coughs) excuse me, how can you say he must be lifted up? Their question seems to be, surely God's anointed eternal king must be too powerful to die? Uh, Or to put it slightly differently, How can they be asked to believe in the Son of Man in order to gain eternal life if he himself will die? How can he deliver the goods if he is mortal? Well, this section closes out um, with Jesus not actually directly answering their question. You might have noticed that in verses 35 and 36. Instead, what he does is he goes back to a theme that we've seen throughout the Gospel that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, We actually saw references to that back in chapters 8 and 9. I've reprinted them there for you on your handout. And like a lighthouse, Jesus gives light in darkness. Like a lighthouse, Jesus gives light in darkness. What he's saying is that If they believe in him, even if they don't necessarily comprehend all the details about who he is and how exactly he can do it, if they believe in him, they will walk in the light and in fact will become children of the light. Verse 36, children of the light. And again, at this point, I just want to pause and for a moment say how wonderful that is. What an extraordinary picture to be told that you can be called children of light 
As opposed to, if I can say, imagine being called a child of darkness. Children of the light. So much more impressive uh, than simply being known as children of your earthly parents. You know, in my case, Loretta and Paul. I'm a child of Loretta and Paul. Because no matter how significant or impressive they might be, imagine, for example, that your parents' names were William and Kate. That could be impressive for some of you, not for others, I get that. Here, to become children of light, protected against all that is wrong in our world, belonging to the one who is the light of the world. Where this section finishes, then, is with Jesus very symbolically acting out everything that he's just said. Look at verse 36 and how it concludes. Verse 36, when he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus left and hid himself from them. See, he is the light of the world, but he's been warning his opponents not to oppose him or to deny him or to get rid of him. Because eventually, that's exactly what he does. The light of the world will leave them in darkness. So what does that mean? Well, we come to our second reading. Thanks, Aaron. Follow along, verses 37 through 50, and we'll hear the last part. Starting from verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Thanks, Aaron. Can I get you to turn back, please, to the previous page, and to verse 37? Uh, and you'll see on your handout that we come to the second part then, on the right-hand side, point two, uh, part two, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. As I said, uh, I don't have time to tease out all the details of this passage. Let me just make two comments about this last section. You'll see they're both printed there on your handout. Firstly, 
from verses 37 to 43, what's happening is nothing new. What's happening is nothing new. And remember the whole point of John's Gospel, uh, why he's written this biography of Jesus? Uh, I printed there on your handout, John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole reason John has recorded all these events about Jesus is that he wants people to believe and have eternal life in the name of Christ. The thing is, over the first 12 chapters, we've seen more belligerence than belief. We've seen more rejection of Jesus than acceptance. And in that context, I think what John is doing is just pausing to address one of the lingering doubts that a reader might have. Is anyone going to come and find eternal life in his name? And if they don't, what does that say about Jesus? And how effective his mission is. Well, first thing to say is that in verses 37 through 41, John insists nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing takes God by surprise. Because sadly, God's people have always rejected him. What John does is he quotes at this point, you can see on your Bible reading, he quotes from Isaiah 600 years before Christ to make his point. God's people have always rejected him. And so it's hardly surprising that they've rejected Jesus in this present day. What's happening is nothing new. Now, if we had time, I'd love to reflect on the profound nature of verse 41. Verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. What does that mean? Um, I think at the very least we can say this much. John is affirming that everything in God's plan has always been building towards glorifying Jesus. Everything in God's plan has always been about building towards glorifying the Son of Man and glorifying the Father's name and the Father giving honour to those who serve Jesus. It's always been like that. That's what God has always been on about. Which for you and me, I think, again, is so reassuring. Because at times, when the darkness can feel so overwhelming and all-consuming, we know we belong to something bigger than ourselves. We belong to this global mission that spans time and space which God has been orchestrating. So it can never fail. Now, as an aside, when John quotes from Isaiah, I don't think he's suggesting that those who reject Jesus are not morally responsible for their actions. I don't think John is saying that Isaiah means, oh, their fate was predetermined, so they're not accountable. The reason why I don't think he's saying that is because look at what he immediately adds in verse 42. Verse 42, yet at the same time, many, even among the believers, believed in him. Many, even among the believers, believed in him. But, look at how he goes on, here's the kicker, because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. 
for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Again, isn't that extraordinary? John is saying people can repent, but they willingly and willfully choose not to do so. What a tragedy. Can you imagine missing out on eternal life? Can you imagine foregoing the chance to become children of the light because you were more worried about what others might think of you? Can I say I realise there has always been a social cost to following Jesus? There's always been a social cost to following Jesus, whether at work or in the classroom, in your family or at the football club, be it online or in person. Maybe it's verbal or sometimes physical. There has always been a social cost to following Jesus. And conversely, I know that all of us love to receive accolades. Or, at the very least, we want others to think well of us. Think of social media and how people react when others fail to like what they have posted. Sometimes mere silence can be deafening and anxiety-inducing. I understand that you really could say all of us live and die in the court of public opinion. But here's the thing. The Father has promised he will honour all those who serve his Son. Why would we ever give that up? And if we're tempted to do so, or if we stumble and fall... What I think John wants us to remember at this point when he talks about those who loved human praise more than praise from God, I think he wants us to remember Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? We met him back in chapter 3. There's a reference there on your handout. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees who came to Jesus at night time seemingly afraid of what others might think. And yet, we'll meet Nicodemus again after Jesus has been glorified. In chapter 19, when Nicodemus comes out of the darkness and reverently and lovingly prepares Jesus' body for burial, even as others have abandoned their Saviour and Lord. Even now... John is reminding us that it is never too late. That even in the face of such unbelief, there is still hope. Here's the second thing to say about this section. You'll see down the bottom right-hand side, come and behold the person and work of Christ. Come and behold the person and work of Christ. Let me read verses 44 through 50 for us. Pick it up with me, verse 44. Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. 
The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Our theologians like to talk about the person and the work of Christ, the person of Christ, who he is, the work of Christ, what he does. And it's a useful distinction to draw, provided we don't artificially separate those categories. After all, who Jesus is, is the key to understanding what he can do. And the way the book of signs closes is with Jesus' self-testimony about who he is and what he has come for. And it's a wonderfully encouraging response, a wonderfully encouraging way to finish, given the shocking response of the Jewish leaders, those who loved human praise more than praise from God. Firstly, the person and work of Christ, who he is? Well, Jesus has the full endorsement of the one who sent him. Go back to verse 45. Verse 45, the one who looks at me sees the one who sent me. Jesus has the full endorsement of the Father. Because, actually, he is the full revelation of God the Father. Uh, We saw that back in John chapter 1, which I printed there for you on your handout. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus has been sent by the Father, and he is the Father's fully endorsed spokesperson. The Father who sent me, verse 49, commanded me to say all that I have spoken. John is telling us, Jesus is saying, you can really trust him. Because he has impeccable credentials. He has the highest level clearance. He has been authorised and authenticated from the very top. That's the person of Christ, who he is, the work of Christ, what he can do. Well, I just want you to focus in on the lovely phrase in verse 47. Verse 47, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In the previous verses... 38 through 41, we saw a tragic reminder of how many are against Christ, of how many deliberately reject him, and they deserve their condemnation. But where this chapter finishes is with Jesus continuing to offer life to anyone who will believe. Now, for the record, and sometimes we can do this, Jesus is not trying to say, Hey guys, I'm the nice one who saves, but God the Father is the nasty, angry judge. He's not trying to do that. Uh, That kind of artificial distinction, uh, it's it's a division where sometimes you hear it with the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath, whereas the God of the New Testament, he's full of love and mercy. Can I say that distinction, it has no basis in Scripture. If nothing else, 
the God of the Old Testament, sorry, the Old Testament consistently speaks of God's unfailing love, His steadfast love, His mercy that is new every morning. And actually, in the New Testament, it's Jesus who preaches more about hell than anyone else. In fact, as we've just seen, God the Father has sent God the Son on this mission and He's told Him exactly what to say on His behalf. So the Father and Son are entirely in lockstep. And so this section concludes with a great appeal. Come to Jesus who saves and receive eternal life in His name. And with that, the Book of Signs closes. Do you know that this is actually Jesus' last public appearance? After this, he's going to go behind closed doors with his disciples. And I think it's a fitting way for us to wrap up 2023. With the reminder that Jesus has not come to condemn, he's come to save. So, To finish 2023, I'd like to urge you, come, find eternal life in Jesus. Come, walk in the light and become children of light. Come, be honoured by the Father for serving His Son because that's a praise that's worth living for, even dying for. This Christmas, come, discover a new, or perhaps again, this incredible story, not just of hope, but also of redemption. Not just of being honoured, but of being saved from the awful consequences of your sin. This Christmas, come, bring your family and friends, because the hour has arrived for them to receive this wondrous gift that is freely given without cost to all who believe. And what I want to say is that next year, every Sunday we meet, in every midweek growth group, on every occasion that we gather, we will continue to come and proclaim the life that can be found in His name, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for all that You've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him, not to condemn, but to save. We thank you for the honour that awaits all those who serve him. We thank you that in him we might be children of light. And we pray that this day, this week, and in this year ahead, you might strengthen us each day to look to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray it for his sake. Amen.